One of the distinctives of this church has always been, as far as I can tell, and uh, as far as it depends on me, will continue to be an intergenerational focus. I want you to look around this room for a moment and just see. You can turn around, you can look. I know it's kind of awkward. You're not used to looking at other people in church, just up here. But look around, make eye contact. Um, I really love the fact that our church has a lot of almost every generation represented. I think that really speaks to the health of this church, the health of the leadership of this church over the past number of decades. And we are a church that wants to continue to cultivate a culture where young and old, regardless of stage of life, know that they're important to God, know that they're important to us, and that we're all learning to love each other more deeply, to serve God more faithfully together, to bear each other's burdens, to encourage one another, to teach one another, out of our particular stages of life and out of the wisdom that God has poured into us. So we're in the middle of a series called Understanding the Spiritual Journey, and we're learning what it looks like to follow Jesus through all of life's decades. And as we move through the series, one of my hopes is that we're going to grow in our understanding and appreciation for those in decades different from our own, and that God is going to help us, like I said, to learn to love each other, as First Peter says, not just to love each other, but to love each other more deeply from the heart, from a place of just profound appreciation and gratitude. Because I think part of what's needed about being a part of a local embodied church is that theologically what we need to, the conclusion we need to come to is that God has appointed all of us to be here together to be a part of Nelson Evangelical Covenant Church for this season. God has placed us all in each other's lives. And that comes with the high and holy calling to learn to uh, serve the Lord and love the Lord together. This week we're looking at the decade of the 40s. So I'll just name the outfit in the room. We're now teaching on decades that I have no experience in living. And so my sermons come from a place of research and gleaning from people who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond. Um, but obviously for me, there's a, a, this just more, it's more academic, so to speak. It's, it's an abstraction. It's ideas to me. Uh, I think ideas that have borne out, as, as I've shared these messages before. Um, but there is a little bit more fear and trembling that I move into as I teach on these next few decades because it's not necessarily a path that I've walked through. I've walked with other people as they've journeyed the path. I've read other people's stories, but uh, this is, the 40s are going to be a new decade for me. Uh, but still important to learn about, uh, and I still want to teach about it because I've been able to, I think, uh, collect some really helpful information uh, from people much wiser who follow Jesus much longer than I have. The 40s are sometimes called by psychologists the hinge decade. T uh, adolescence and 40s are sometimes talked about as the hinge decade of life in the sense that the decisions that you make in those decades have a disproportionate shaping effect for the next two or three Remember the wise and foolish builders in Matthew 7 from the 20s establishing your foundation? It's often at some point during the 40s that the storms of life really hit us and we find out what our foundation is made of. Specifically in relationships. The 40s is a time where we're anxious to save relationships, where we need to save relationships. The foundation of our marriage and key relationships begin to show themselves whether they're strong or weak. And it's often in these core relationships that we need to take time to repair, to do repair, restoration work. We need to intervene in some way because there's been a lot of stressors that have been building up from the outside, a lot of stressors from the inside, 
cracks in the foundation are beginning to show. Now, because of our social capital that many of us enjoy in Western culture, our relative wealth, education, support systems that we have, many of us have likely been able to navigate life pretty well through the 30s. But for many people, the 40s confront them with a new set of challenges that they don't feel equipped to know how to face and how to handle. When you talk to people in their 40s, some of the common experiences and things they speak to out of that decade are feeling like you're being pulled in a hundred different directions. And we talked about how busy the 30s are, and I think people in their 40s say, I thought the 30s was really busy. I thought that was the limits of my exhaustion. And it seems to have, my capacity for exhaustion has seemed to <laughs> increase. I didn't think it could get any more crazy, any, any busier, any more difficult. And part of that is because as you move into your 40s and early 50s, you're now moving into being part of the sandwich generation. You're caring both for your children and for your aging parents. So now there's new pressures on that end, where maybe if we had a a healthy and and strong family system, we've been relying on our parents for a lot of support through the 20s and 30s, and now they're increasingly needing our support. So that's another relationship where we're used to, in a sense, taking, that we're having to learn to give more and more. People in their 40s speak to a general discontentment or boredom with life, or with things that did provide fulfillment not that long ago, and now, eh, just something sparks missing. Something's gone. There's a feeling of restlessness, of wanting to do something completely different. And as maybe into the mid or late 40s, depending on your family situation or life situation, as reflective space opens up, the 40s can be a time where we're starting to look at what you've accomplished in your life and ask, have I really done what I have wanted to do? Have I really done what I'm supposed to do? to do. We've been so busy climbing the ladder of success, this is sometimes a time where we look and say, have I leaned that ladder against the right wall? Or have I been so busy pursuing success, I've just been climbing, and I don't really care where I've been heading, I've just been, I've been making progress upwards. Like the 30s, the 40s often struggle with disillusionment between the way things are and the way they expected them to be or hoped their life would look like at 40. The 40s are a time when health stressors start. We're becoming more aware with every year that we're not 20 anymore. One physician said, the 40s are like a second puberty. Your body is changing and there's nothing you can do about it. And that is becoming a reality with every passing year. And then work can be very demanding because Uh, Some people occupy positions of significant responsibility, senior leadership in in organizations and in their business. And when you stack all of these realities, when you layer them on top of each other, cumulatively, many 40-somethings feel like they're losing control or that their life is unraveling, that they don't have the strength to bear up on their shoulders all of these things which require their attention which is really ironic because sometimes to the outside world, in your 40s, you look like you've peaked. You've got uh, maybe not a young family anymore, but your family's kind of there. You you, you post the Instagram photos, and people are like, wow, it looks like everything's settled and in place. So externally, you can look like you have it all together, but internally, you can feel very, very fragile and very vulnerable. 
What are the major spiritual challenges of the 40s? Well, I want to say, first of all, that you know, this is where the decades, maybe to a greater extent than before, begin to bleed into each other. So there's going to be a lot of stuff that I talked about in the 30s, the spiritual challenges of the 30s. They're going to have a lot of overlap with the 40s. So I didn't want to revisit that. If you go back in and look at some of the specific challenges to the 30s, there's going to be a lot of people in their 40s who are going to say, I'm, that, that's me right there. Um, so I don't want to kind of go over that ground. What I want to do is I want to talk about what I think is a little bit more specific to the 40s, maybe moving into the 50s. And that is the major spiritual challenge of navigating the midlife transition. You might have heard it referred to as midlife crisis. It doesn't have to be a crisis. It can simply be a midlife transition. But I want to speak to that. One of the most helpful frameworks that I've been exposed to in my life, it's helped me a lot pastorally, helped me to make sense of my own journey, has come out of um, a Roman Catholic teacher named Richard Rohr, who, quite honestly, I don't recommend you read for his theology, uh, but he's very, very good in terms of his psychology, his understanding of human dynamics and the process of, of growth. And out of a lot of uh, reflections that I've read of his and a few other people, and some of my psychology background. What I want to share with you this morning is a model that presumes that if you think of life as a whole and you split it in half, there are some distinct patterns to the first half of life and the second half of life. It's kind of a broad oversimplification, but I refer to this using Rohr's language of the spirituality of the two halves of life. And the premise is this that there are two halves to our lives. And the rules for what leads to growth and maturity in the first half are slightly different from those that lead to growth and maturity during the second half of life. And it's usually sometime in the 40s, again, speaking in generalities, that that transition from a first half of life spirituality to a second half of life spirituality begins to happen. It's a slow Movement, it's a subtle shift, but it tends to happen at some point in the 40s. And it's not something that you do, you're not looking for it, it's something that you become increasingly aware is happening to you. It's not something you can control, it's really a posture that you simply need to, you need to recognize that it's happening, and instead of resisting it, to kind of lean into it, and to, and to kind of go with the flow, as it were. And how you respond to this midlife transition between the first half of life and the second half of life is, I think, the most important challenge of the 40s and, for some people, into the 50s. Okay, let me break down this model for you and explain why I think it's really helpful and why I also think it's very biblical. So the first half of the spiritual life, and let's just say, again, broad generalities. Well, I'm going to stop saying that. Just, Just remember, when I'm saying these statements about the 30s and the 50s, we're talking about uh, patterns, not particularities to everyone's individual journey. The first half of life, zero to 40, is defined by rules and willfulness. Rules and willfulness. Our ability to grow is tied to our ability to know the rules and to follow the rules and to assert ourselves, to be proactive, to be engaged. And so the habits that lead to maturity and growth in the first half of our lives are structure, routine, strong sense of morality, black and white thinking, discipline, hard work, ambition, idealism, self-control, 
and a focus on personal achievement. If these values and habits are embraced and practiced during the first half of your life, you're likely to be a pretty healthy, maturing person into your 30s. Taken together, these habits form a container that allow you to go deep in one place, allow you to be rooted and grounded in healthy, productive habits, and to experience the fruitfulness that comes from a life that is focused around these habits. So that's the first half of the spiritual life, major themes. The second half is defined by grace and willingness. So from rules and willfulness, trying to assert yourself, to grace and willingness. And it's in the second half of our life that our ability to grow is tied more to our ability to love deeply and self-sacrificially and to radically surrender to God's purposes for our lives. And so in the second half, the values and the principles and the practices from the first half are not discarded. They're not, oh, we don't need these anymore, but they soften. Uh, One visual metaphor you might think to use is um, there are values for the first and second half of life, and in the first half, the first half values should be in the driver's seat, and the second half of life values should be in the passenger seat. And then for the second half of life, they need to switch. So we're not saying, get out of the car, I don't need you anymore. We're simply saying, I operate out of a slightly different emphasis. So again, we're not talking about either or thinking. We're talking about A versus B. Both are necessary. And from my reading and research, there are five kind of principles and practices that lead to life and growth in the second half of our life. And those are these five things. Deep humility, deep simplicity, deep faith, deep grace, deep generosity. I, I use the adjective deep there because, as you will obviously hopefully recognize, oh, well, those things are a part of my life. I value those things. And in the first half of our life, of course we should. Again, driver's seat, passenger seat. What, will ha- what, I, what I think happens and where I think God wants to lead us in the second half of our life is a deepening and an expansion beyond what we thought those words meant in the first half of our life. I talked to a lot of people who said, after this midlife transition, I use words like humility, simplicity, faith, faith, grace, and generosity, I use those and live those out very differently than I did the first half of my life. They mean something much more complex, much richer, much much more robust, and it's sometimes even hard for people to put into words. And so what we're seeing here, first half of life values that lead to growth, second half of life values that sustain and move us uh, deeper into Christ-likeness. Now, for many of you, this distinction between first and second half of life might be new, and you might be asking, okay, is this biblical? And I would say, absolutely, for those who have eyes to see. It does require us to kind of pull out of, let's say, um, some particular proof text, although we're going to get to one in a second that I think is a pretty interesting proof text for this, um, and, look, and kind of get a bird's-eye view of Scripture. Oh, I almost knocked down the keyboard. That would have been bad. And see kind of the overall narrative of what God is doing in the Bible. So think, for example, just for a moment, about the general distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The caricature, right? Old Testament rules, laws, angry God, New Testament, no rules, grace, freedom, love, happy, loving God, 
terrible caricature, uh, not accurate at all. But in the unfolding of God's narrative plan of redemption with his, and with his people Israel, there is a leaning, again, driver's seat versus passenger seat, there's a leaning in the Old Testament towards God's law, rules, structure, obedience, black and white thinking, morality, clear. Everything is strictly defined. And what God calls his people to is very, very precise. And then in the New Testament, again, it's not, Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law. It's not that it's discarded, but a slightly deepened new priorities come to the fore. Technically, we should stone this woman caught in adultery. Let he who has the first sin, let he who has no sin cast the first stone. So we're seeing this uh, difference. So Old Testament, where it might be focused in a good way on rigidity and discipline, and the New Testament focus on maybe more grace-filled, generous, loving emphasis, still connected to those things, but moving beyond them and expanding their application. Galatians 3.24 is pretty instructive here. Paul talks about the law, the instruction that God gave his people. He says, it was our guardian until Christ came. And the word that he uses for guardian means custodian. And this was a servant who, in the first century, had the responsibility to accompany and protect and sometimes discipline the master's son until the boy reached maturity. Uh, Kind of like a a nanny, but kind of a nanny on steroids, because this person was responsible to take care of education and moral formation as well. So these custodians supervised their child, the child's moral conduct and general behavior, and their methods of persuasion varied from physical punishment to even shaming. And Paul calls the Mosaic Law a custodian or a guardian, or um, in the NASB, a tutor that was there to lead us to Christ. It wasn't the end. It was what we needed at the start. But it was to prepare us for a new covenant and a shift in how we live out God's purposes in our lives. On another level, you can think about the tension between Jesus and Paul. Some liberal scholars or secular uh, New Testament scholars will say, wow, if you look at all of Jesus' teachings... And all of Paul's teachings, it's almost like two different kinds of Christianity. And so they'll use language like Pauline theology or Pauline, speaking of Paul, Pauline Christianity as a way to pit Jesus and Paul against each other or to try and undermine the fact that the Bible isn't really the authoritative word of God. See, Jesus said these things, but then Paul came along and changed it. And I think that's a really foolish a misunderstanding of what's happening in the text. And it makes more sense when you understand it through this lens, that Paul is primarily, again, not either or, front seat, passenger seat, he's primarily a first half of life teacher. Because who is Paul primarily writing to? Gentiles who don't know the law, haven't been raised on God's law, who don't know the fundamentals. So, You're never going to hear Jesus teach things like you shouldn't be uh, sleeping with your mother-in-law. Like Paul has to write in 1 Corinthians because he's dealing with people who don't have these foundational things in place. He has to teach very rudimentary at times elements of the faith. He has to connect the dots 
because these are people who are, in, spiritually speaking, in the first half of their life. They need to be brought up to speed on basic things around structure, morality, and discipline, and hard work, and self-control, and what God has taught. Jesus is primarily a second half of life teacher, because who is Jesus' primary audience? The Jews. They know the law. They've memorized it. They can, they can quote scripture. His mission is focused on teaching Israel, people who have known and obeyed the law for much of their life. That's a good thing. But their spiritual challenges are different because their core temptation is, are things like spiritual self-righteousness or spiritual egocentricity or just obeying the letter of the law but not the spirit of the law. I'm obeying you, Jesus. Technically, I'm doing the right thing. And then Jesus invites them to something greater, and that's where they struggle, to take hold of the full weight and measure of God's glory. And so I think what's important to see here is that both are necessary for spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, both of these halves. And again, it's not an either-or. These bleed into each other. But in the first half of life, we want to lean more in this direction. We're prepared more to do that. And in the second half of life, we want to lean more in this direction. A, B, driver's seat, passenger seat, not either or. And it's in the 40s when this transition usually begins. And it often begins very subtly. It's a, it's a growing sense that something feels off or wrong. That's how most people describe it to me. People wonder if they're backsliding because they're like, there's just stuff that doesn't fire me up anymore. There are ways of engaging my faith that 10 years ago, this totally fed me and now it doesn't. And is there something wrong with me? Am I harboring secret sin? Am I just becoming spiritually apathetic? So it can, at the start, feel like an internal distress. Things are changing, but it's hard to put your finger on it. Now, although it's a slow transition, sometimes the transition from a first to second half of life spirituality can be accelerated by something that some authors have called the great defeat, or just a great defeat. This can accelerate this movement. So you might find people depending on their life experience, who are occupying a second half of life in their teenage years, depending on what they've gone through early on in their life. Because this great defeat is usually a significant loss or failure. It could be the loss of something integral to your identity, a friend, a parent, could be your health, loss of a child, job, marriage, a loss of a childhood because of abuse or neglect, it could be a failure of your own making. It doesn't matter what it is. This defeat is usually something big enough to confront you with your own limitations. It's big enough to confront your utter powerlessness to make life what you want it to be. In the previous decades of life up to this point, we've often been able to leverage our social capital to grow and to arrange the pieces more or less how we might want them to be. But the great defeat, this big defeat, puts an end to that. And when it happens, you know it because the fairy tale is over. We're not talking about generic suffering here. We're talking about something very, very significant that threatens kind of life as you know it. And generally speaking, that tends to open up for people somewhere in their 30s to 50s for the first time in a really, really ground-shaking way. So this transition from first to second half of the spiritual life is the major task of recognizing that it's happening during this midlife period 
and making the necessary adjustments in order to align yourself to these priorities and principles, to not resist it. There's an interesting story of resistance that Jesus comes up against in Matthew 19. This is the scripture that I picked out for this week because I think it both illustrates this process and it's a pretty significant warning uh, that many of us probably need to hear. Matthew 19, verses 16 to 22. Fairly familiar story to many of us. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of those I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions, give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. This is a story often pulled out in discussions around how should Christians relate to our money. Are we called in following Jesus to give up everything? And, and that's not an inappropriate, this is an important text to look at here. But I want you to look at it through the lens of first to second half of life transition. Do you see how this is a story about someone who is resisting the transition to, a, to following Jesus into the second half of his life? This is someone who's haunted by an awareness that something is missing, something's off. We find out by the end, he's pretty moral, but what, what do I still lack? He's, he's got a lot of the right things in place. He has all the markers, actually, that anybody in the first century would look from the outside and say, that person is blessed by God. He's young. He's rich. He has power. Um, he's moral. Really, the text, I've heard some people try and finagle different things in the text. The text doesn't give us much permission to assume that he's somehow this raging hypocrite who's just blind to his own to the fact that he hasn't caught, um, that he hasn't um, been keeping these commands. He's morally very serious. He's a God-fearing Jew. What could he possibly be missing? And Jesus, with one invitation, exposes this person's need when he invites him to sell his possessions and follow him. Think about the values of the first half of life. These things have brought you here. That's good. I'm not going to say any of those things are bad. But this is what I'm calling you to do now. I'm calling you to give up a life of let go of um, rules and willfulness and be willing to follow me into the great unknown. Do you trust me? From rules and willfulness to grace and surrender. But this young man, he can't do it. He, he can't do it. He's not ready. He doesn't just have money, but his money has him. His wealth, 
He's like, I've spent a lot of time, like, I've, I'm kind of set. Like, I've had to work really hard, morally, financially, relationally, to get where I am. Here I am. And it hasn't delivered what I thought it would. But if you're inviting me to something different, Jesus, and I have to give this up, maybe I would rather live with a yawning emptiness. I don't know if I'm willing to give up this house that I've built, this life that I've made for myself. This is a really haunting story, and I think of it often, and I think of, I think of it often in the context of, you know, I don't want this to be how my story around my midlife ends. Where I hear that call, that invitation to something greater and deeper and richer, and out of whatever motive, self-protective motive, I say, no thanks, and I shrink back and I, I walk away from Jesus. So if your 40s are supposed to be a time to exchange this, this spiritual striving for spiritual surrender, if it's supposed to be a time to move deeper into God's grace, if it's a time to learn and enjoy God and to learn to live out of a new dimension of his power and his grace and expressed through humility and simplicity, faith, grace, generosity, how do you lean into that midlife transition? How do you go with the flow? How do you put yourself in a position so that when Jesus says, I want you to give up blank and then come follow me, our response is, that is scary, but it's also exciting, and I'm ready. I'm ready, Jesus, and I'll say yes to you. How do we do that? Um, two things. Um, a lot that I could say here. Um, the first is, I think this is, maybe this sheds new light on why practicing spiritual disciplines are really important in the first half of our life. Practicing disciplines of secret defeat are really, really important leading up to your 40s and 50s. I'm borrowing that term, disciplines of secret defeat, from Andy Crouch. Because these disciplines prepare us for the transition. Long before that transition, God is instigating that transition, these begin to prepare the soil of our hearts for the transition. And here are the disciplines of secret defeat that help to usher in this transition and help us to move through it in a way that is healthy. Fasting and confession. Confessing your sin, not other people's sins, and fasting. Intentionally saying no to yourself, whether it's food or cell phone or media, whatever it is. Taking time to build those rhythms into your life are incredibly important, and they will help you surrender into deeper humility in the second half of your life. The disciplines of tithing, moving towards striving to give 10% or more of your income to God's mission and kingdom in the world, and, and to be pursuing generosity with your money, will force you into simplicity, right? I mean, that, that's one of the benefits of, of tithing and giving. When I give my first fruits of my tithe, that's just less money on a practical level that I have to spend on myself. So I have to learn to live more simply as a result of enriching God and his kingdom. And that helps prepare me for the midlife transition where I, will be taking, I should be taking on a posture where I just kind of realize, I, don't, I just don't need this stuff to be happy. It just, it's easier. It should, be, it should be progressively easier, easier with every decade of Christian life to give more and more money away. Money's a good thing. The love of money is a very dangerous um, thing. 
And part of what distinguishes someone in the second half of life is they just are uh, very open and free with their money. They're they're not close-fisted. And that's why early in your life, when you're tempted to be close-fisted, I need this money for this, I need this money for this, I can't live without this, the discipline of tithing helps to prepare that soil for this transition. Contemplative prayer, deep faith. And I don't mean faith is like a willful power of like, ooh, I'm mustering up faith, God. I mean faith is surrender to God's purposes of saying yes to God. I trust you. Deep trust. Contemplative prayer. Learning modes of prayer where we're learning to spend time with God through his word. A lot of great resources out there on contemplative prayer. I'd be happy to connect people with them if that's of interest to you. But just learning different ways of praying that is receiving from God and and, um, allowing God to pour into us so that we live out of a posture of deep faith and deep trust in who he is. Deep grace. How does that happen? It's by practicing the secret defeats of forgiveness and restitution. Extending forgiveness, especially in the second half of life, taking stock over some of the patterns and dysfunctions of the first half and saying, I need to seek forgiveness for certain things. I need to extend forgiveness to people. Now that I know their journey a little bit more, now that I've seen my journey, now that I realize it's not so easy, um, or I'm holding them to a different standard than I would hold myself to. Restitution, trying to make things right in relationships, maybe with our aging parents, maybe with family members, and then deep generosity by learning to serve others. And specifically, and I think this is really important, um, in the second half of life, doing it in the first half, but it needs to ramp up, I think, in the second half, not just serving other people, but serving the poor and the powerless. Serving people who have no, little to no ability to have that swing back because it's going to be a return on investment because they have something to offer you. Jesus talks about, a lot about that in the Sermon on the Mount and his teachings, right? About... You know, when you, when, you, when you host a feast, right, don't invite you know, all these people you know, um, who can pay you back because of their wealth and social status. Part of the inbreaking of the kingdom will be you're going to be inviting people who can't pay you back because that's what God has done for you. He's opened up to you a meal and a life and an eternity that you can't possibly return enough uh, love and gratitude and thanks for so those, that would be, that'd be uh, one thing that I think is, is really important. Practice the disciplines of secret defeat. Begin to ask, do I fast? Do I confess? Am I tithing? Am I pursuing generosity, contemplative prayer? Begin to learn to move those into your life, and God will use those to help you transition in a way that's healthy. A second piece of counsel, uh, fairly briefly, I have to make, I, I'm going to address men and then women, because the inner and the inner world of each is undergoing a huge shift somewhere in the 40s and 50s. So there has to be a bit of a distinction made. So I want to address each individually. A lot of men in the 40s and 50s wrestle with the sense of there must be more than this. I've achieved in large measure what I've wanted to achieve or what I think I'm good at. And it's not fueling me anymore. The spark isn't that there must be more to life than this. Maybe I don't, maybe I feel guilty saying that, but like there must be more to life than this. And in the 40s, a lot of men realize they've been chasing after things that don't really deliver what they thought they would. Men often discover they've lost their identity in the service of certain, well, culturally, broadly speaking, wrong things. They've put money or power or sex or ego at the forefront. That's been the fuel out of which they've tried to operate and achieve. And even if they succeed and they get these titles and the prestige and the power that comes along with it, they realize 
it actually doesn't mean very much. And personal ambition begins to fade. We've used the metaphor of building a house. Richard Rohr says, you know, men in the first half of their life are obsessed with building a tower to make a name for themselves, like the Tower of Babel. Look at me, look how great I am. Look what I've been able to accomplish. And he says, the the question that uh, ought to be at the forefront for men in the second half of the life is, what are you going to do with that tower? There it is. Congratulations. But that's not the end. It's like, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to leverage that now for God's glory and for the world's good? And the midlife transition for men means, again, and I want to preface this by saying we're not talking about either or, we're talking about a a shift from making your mark, striving in success, to relationships and reflection. It tends to be a movement from trying to make a mark out there in the exterior world to shifting into an emphasis of learning to go deeper in relationships and processing your own journey. For men, this often means a radical recommitment to service for the common good and increased attention to the inner life. A lot of men find this awkward because it feels to them like hesitancy. It feels like giving up. It feels like weakening. And it it can be very scary for men. So what some men do is this transition is in place, is starting. They're aware that something is wrong. They don't know what's wrong. They feel like the zest maybe for life has that light's gone out a little bit. So what the immature man will do is he'll cycle back into his 20s and say, I'll do at 20 what gave me life and made me feel strong and powerful. And that'll be the jump start. Corvette, younger woman. uh, Throw caution to a new job. uh, Greater financial ambition. And then they shipwreck themselves. Because that's not what the journey is about. The journey isn't to regress and to go back. You're being led into a new space where, you're, again, you're not discarding certain values. You're softening them, letting other ones take their place towards greater emphasis on relationships and love and making, allowing this external change you've done in the world to begin work in your own heart. This is really, really difficult for a lot of men because they haven't tended to spend the first half of their life developing good relationships. It's hard for even some men to have one person in their life to talk to about this. But that's part of the spiritual journey, the second half of life. Find one man, one other man in your life who in some ways is tracking with this that you can just talk openly and honestly about. That that, that, that can be a literal lifesaver for some men in the second half of their life, just to find one soul brother. Women are often experiencing the same resistance and frustration that men are having. There must be more to life than this. There must be more to life than this. Because women have often lost their identity in the service of very good things in the first half of their life. Often family, raising of children, relationships. And during, it's during the midlife transition where women often transition from relationships and reflection and, and uh, serving and helping other people to achieve their children to striving and success. They move from more of an emphasis on the home interior world to the external world. And this is an important movement for uh, women to hear, well, for all of us to hear. Um, Often some of the best Christian leaders who are making the biggest impact are second half of life women. 
women have to own the fact that this discontent that is stirring is something very good, and you are likely being slowly ushered into a new phase of impact and serving and, in the best sense of the word, achievement. And, and there's, a lot of women speak to you. There's a new dream that emerges. I feel like God has put something on my heart, and it begins to burn just brighter and brighter and brighter and hotter and hotter and hotter as they move through their 40s and early 50s. And it's important for women to take ownership of that. And so you are being invited to, to get out there and strike out and to make your mark. And husbands need to know that so that they can open up space for their wives to explore and expand this new chapter of calling for them. So men move from exterior to interior, you know, very simplistically. Women move from interiority to exteriority. Which again, another, I just thought about right now, another another layer about um, why we see so many interesting interactions with Jesus and women in the Gospels. Read, read through those interactions again. Woman at the well, if, if you, woman caught in adultery. Think through this lens. Second half of life, inviting women into positions of authority and leadership and, and culture-shaping influence. How can we as a church support those in their 40s? I think a big thing is just acknowledging the midlife transition and helping to give people tools. Uh, the church is really, really good at helping people with first half of life spirituality. Read your Bible, pray, these disciplines, ways of thinking. And that's, uh, I, I don't say that in a condemnatory way. That's really, really good. Where the church tends to fall is what to do with second half of life uh, Christians. When they say, I am reading my Bible, I am praying, but something is, something's lacking. I don't feel like I'm taking hold of the life that God wants from me. I don't think anything's wrong, but just things don't feel right. How do we help coach people through this transition that's happening? I have some resources I'll share next week that the Evangelical Covenant Church has just come out with that uh, I, th- I think are really exciting and really good. Create spaces for lament. I think it's important for people going through the big defeat, whatever it looks like for them for the church to be a space where they have a few people, a small group, where they can say, I just feel crummy. I feel like my world's caving in, and people will be with them and love them and pray for them. Obviously, create small group spaces for men to begin to process some of this transition in a way that they don't have to feel more vulnerable than they already do, saying, I feel really vulnerable and fragile and weird and like things are topsy-turvy. And then to create spaces for women to step into the second half of life and their calling and their passion and some of this energy that wants to move out into the world, how are we as a church helping to say, you go, girl, here you go. Here are resources, here are opportunities. The second thing I would say is, to people in their their 40s, you know, I I think it's important to extend a a lot of patience and a lot of grace. Be very patient, be very gracious with people. We talked about all the layers of complexity and, and demands and responsibility that face us in our 40s. You add this interior shift where people's worlds feel like they're really changing and they're trying to figure out how to hold all of this together and how to make sense of it. I often say to teenagers, if there's any teenagers here, um, you know, in your 40s, you're often raising teenagers. So that's, a, that's a really stressful time. But teens, you know, I, I know when you're a teenager, you look at your parents and they're just like a caricature. They're like a one-dimensional cardboard. That's a parent. And all they do is some stuff around the house and tell you what to do or not do. Like, they're not really real people. They're not fully embodied uh, image, of, you know, image bearers of God. They're just kind of parents. But they are real people. They are image bearers. And I used to say to the youth group that I used to lead, I said, um, 
be, be patient and gracious with your parents. They are dealing with things that if you had to carry them for five minutes would psychologically crush you. You, you, would, you would just you would collapse under the weight psychologically of what they're carrying. They've learned to carry it. By God's grace, they're learning how to carry it in God's grace and love. Um, but pray for them. I think it's important for children to pray for your parents. Pray for God's grace to take hold in their life, for God to empower them, and to ask yourselves, how, how can I be a part in serving and helping my parents during this challenging time of life? The 40s is a time when Jesus calls us to second half of life's spirituality. However, as we'll read about in the Gospels, as we'll experience in our own life, that is a call, it's not a compulsion. Jesus will not make us go there. He will invite us. But he will allow us to make the decision as to whether or not we're going to follow him into his future or ours. And to follow him into his future, I really believe is to embark on something scary, but beautiful and glorious. And to turn down that offer because of our love for lesser things. And to follow, to walk away from Jesus and move into our own future is a grand tragedy that will always leave us saddened. And so I implore you today to heed his call and follow him into his future for you. Let's pray. As we close with the song, God, may you be stirring and doing something in your hearts through your Holy Spirit so that when this time of transition comes and we're called into a deeper experience and expression of, as Paul says in Corinthians, faith, hope, and love, we'd be ready for that transition. Would you help those who are in that transition right now, who are feeling scared, who are feeling vulnerable, who just feel off? Uh, I pray this message would find good soil and it would be comforting to them, God. And would those who have people going through this transition in our lives, would we be mindful, God, to, to pray for them consistently, to lift them up before you so that uh, this transition doesn't turn into a crisis and this becomes a doorway through which to enter into a deeper and richer relationship with you. We want to serve you with our whole lives, God. Teach us and show us how to do that. In Jesus' name.